Welcome to another episode of Search News You Can Use with me, Dr. Marie Haynes. You guys, I wrote an article. <laughs> this used to be one of my most favorite things to do, was to learn something and then write about it. And then I realized that I haven't published a blog post in a very long time. I've written a lot of stuff for newsletter, but the last article that I wrote was full article at least was about the December core update and that was published on search engine land not even on our own website so I'm really happy to uh, share a bit with you about this article. There, there was a tweet this week about FTC warning letters that several medical websites received uh, over the last few months or so and this person on Twitter was asking John Mueller whether those warning letters would be factored into Google's algorithms. I think it's a valid question because we know that Google wants to look at factors related to trust. Obviously, that's the T in EAT. So I started to write an entry for newsletter on on this and it turned out to be a full blog post. So I absolutely loved writing it. Hopefully I'll be able to do more of this in the future. Uh, I'm going to share my thoughts on this in podcast as well, in case you aren't able to read it, um, on basically on how the things are laid out in the FTC letters, because you can see the whole letters online. They're available for anybody to see. And although they aren't exactly what's in the quality raters guidelines, I think there are a lot of similarities. So I'm going to share with you in a little bit what I wrote in this article and uh, why I thought it was very, very interesting. You might have heard that SEMrush hit the New York Stock Exchange recently, which is very, very exciting. Congrats, SEMrush. I had a little look this week at whether all of this press was good for SEMrush's own rankings. So I'll share that information with you in a little bit as well. And I'm sure that you've heard that the ship that was blocking the Suez Canal is free now. <laughs> Somebody built a website. It, it probably took them a couple of hours to do it, I'd say. I, I found the website fascinating, so I'm going to talk about that uh, shortly as well. This is episode number 177 of Search News You Can Use. If you're new to the podcast, and I know several of you are because our listenership is really going up every week, which is very exciting for me. I love sharing this stuff. And if you guys love listening to it, then this is a pretty sweet thing. I think it's a good arrangement. So if you're new to podcast, most of the information that I share here is available also at mariehaines.com slash newsletter. Every week, I, what I try to do is share the most important things you need to know in terms of SEO and in understanding Google's algorithms, and also add my thoughts on what my team and I have learned over the last week or so in SEO. All right. Let's talk about algorithm updates. At this point, I feel like I should just record myself saying there was some kind of an update or a significant update Google uh, ran this week as pretty much every week for months now, we've had at least one date where a good number of the websites in our profile are seeing changes that look typical to us of what we see when a Google update affects a website. We first started noticing these significant mini updates around January 27th of this year. I'm not going to relist all the dates on which we've seen significant updates. You can find those at mariehaines.com slash algo, A-L-G-O. We list everything that we think is significant whenever we get any data or maybe information from the SEO community that helps us understand what it is that Google changed at a specific time. And then we add that to our algo update list. But lately, the list has just been essentially a bunch of dates. And for the ones that we have investigated, 
in every case, when we look at which page is performed or which pages maybe saw losses, the one consistent thing that we can say is that the pages that really uh, performed well were ones that were more relevant to the searcher's query. And I've speculated over the last few weeks that maybe what we're seeing is actually not significant changes to Google's algorithm, but actually changes to the knowledge graph. But who knows? I, I really think that Google's making a lot of advances lately and moving very, very quickly at implementing changes to their algorithms to make them even better. And that's probably what we're seeing. If you're looking for more discussion on how Google's algorithms have changed over the years, I talked about that extensively in last week's episode. That was episode number 176. So this week's mystery update was on March 29th. Uh, we had a good number of clients with improvements at this time, which is always a good thing for us to see. And a small number of sites that saw losses as well. But really there aren't any patterns among sites that were affected. We can't say that the majority are medical sites or maybe e-commerce sites. And I, you know, we just can't find a, a, a unifying fact. I expect though that if I did a deep analysis of this update, which we've stopped doing an analysis of every single blip, we, we probably would find the same thing that we've been finding in previous updates since January 27th. And that's that once again, Google got a little bit better at promoting websites that meet a searcher's needs. Barry Schwartz did have some interesting comments in his article about this update though. Uh, so he noticed that there was more chatter than usual in the SEO forums about an update, which lines up with what we're seeing in our data again, March 29th. And he wondered if maybe it was tied in some way to some of the complaints he's been seeing across Google's help forums in regards to Google discover content. Barry linked to a Reddit post where people were complaining that their discover feed was not showing them anything new recently. Now, it's not uncommon for the discover feed to pull articles from even a year or so ago and suggest them to people. I'm actually getting pretty amazed at how well discover does this. Uh, usually when discover suggests to me an article that's over a year old, it's one that I end up clicking on. They're usually really good at knowing what I'm going to find interesting, but I guess there's been an uptick in people saying that new content is not getting to discover, but the dates don't actually line up with March 29th. Um, a lot of these people complaining had issues before March 29th. So if this is an issue, it's a separate one, I think. I thought it was worth mentioning though, because I know more and more of you are paying attention to discover traffic these days. So if you've been having consistent discover traffic, cause it's really normal for sites to have just little blips where discover really likes your site for a while, or maybe one particular page, and then you don't get any traffic from discover for a while. That's normal. But if you've been having consistent discover traffic and now you're finding that there's an issue, I'd love for you to tweet at me and, and let me know about that. Another thing to be aware of, if you keep an eye on your crawl stats, is that there are apparently some reporting issues in search console between March 10th and March 23rd, where you might've noticed a drop in page fetches from Google. Apparently it's just a reporting issue and Google's crawling pages just fine. But if you're wondering why it seems like they're crawling less, this might explain it. It's not actually that Google's crawling less. They're just uh, some, for some reason, not reporting it. 
We do have a sponsor for this episode, and once again, I want to share with you about Sitebulb, which is an incredible site crawling tool. They have an offer for any of you who want to try the tool out for a couple of months. What you see in your source code and even crawls of your website could be completely different from what Google sees, especially if you use JavaScript. JavaScript has the potential to modify important page elements like links and page titles without you even knowing. So Sitebulb has a new feature now. It's called the response versus render report. And what it does is it lets you compare each of your pages responses. So if what comes out in the rendered HTML is different from what's in the response HTML, this can mean that you're presenting a web page to Google in a way that's different than what you'd expect. And it can cause all sorts of problems. So if you'd like to give Sitebulb a try for free, you can get a special extended trial license using the code search news you can use at sitebulb.com slash search news. So I'm sure you've heard about this ship that's been stuck in the Suez Canal for such a long time. It's a metaphor for so many things. And I've seen, I'm sure you've seen them too, some really funny memes over the last week about this ship. Well, somebody created a website called istheshipstillstuck.com. Tim Solo from Ahrefs pointed out that the site has accrued almost 700 linking domains in the short time that it's existed. I actually just checked and there's, uh, Ahrefs is reporting 683 websites are linking to istheshipstillstuck.com. For some of us as SEOs, I think the first thing we thought when we saw this, at least I did, was, wow, I wonder where they're going to redirect all that to once the talk dies down about this uh, situation. And who knows whether, I, I don't even know whether that works these days. Uh, the guy who created this website, is uh, his name is Tom Neal. And he actually published an article about the website going viral. It's really, really interesting. So I, I thought I'd share it with you. He's a good writer. He starts off by saying, uh, as anyone reading this knows, the Ever Given was stuck in the Suez Canal for just over six days. It blocked the route that normally carried 10% of the world's trade. More importantly, at least for this post, it also generated more than 10% of the world's memes, <laughs> which is too funny. According to Tom, the website received over 50 million views in a five-day period. That puts it on par with the type of traffic that the New York Times gets. The first version of the site that he made was simply a headline. And the headline said, is that ship still stuck? And an answer that at that time said yes. <laughs> and there were uh, three recent articles from the New York Times. He says he used the New York Times search API and set it up in, it took him about an hour to set it up. What I thought was really interesting in his article though, was how he knew that this idea was going to take off because of the engagement that he was getting on his tweet about this website. I have seen other people who have used tweets or other social engagement as a barometer to help you decide what content to create. I use it myself sometimes. Often if you have a, a tweet that goes viral or even a tweet that just gets more engagement than you're used to, it means that your audience is interested in that topic. So he knew that this website was going to be successful. Tom says that he did nothing to promote the site other than tweeting about it, which is kind of cool. If you think of all the work that some of us do to try to get our clients uh, work in front of journalists, in front of major news publications, all he had to do for this idea was tweet about it. 
So as the site started to get more and more traffic, Tom started to worry that maybe he was going to have a massive hosting bill. So then he considered monetizing it. So one of the latest fads that I've seen is trying to create something called an NFT, a non-fungible token. He says, I thought it would be fun to be the first meme website to sell itself as an NFT. So I know just enough about NFTs to tell you what it stands for and that it has something to do with the blockchain, but I'm not going to try to explain that part any further. It turns out that that didn't make him a whole lot of money. He sold it for about $200. Still not bad for something that he created, uh, you know, in a couple of hours worth of work. The part that really, really struck me as smart though, was that he also added Amazon affiliate links to very interesting books on this page. So if you go to this website, some of the books are about the Suez Canal or really interesting things like the history of the world. Um, they were interesting enough that it actually got me to click and look at a few of these books. So now if I buy something on Amazon in the next few days, while his Amazon cookie is sitting on my browser, he's going to get a commission from that. It turns out though that, uh, he says in the post, it actually has only made him a few hundred dollars in terms of uh, affiliate revenue. I thought it would be more. So, but wait, there's more. So then when the ship became partially unstuck, because it's free now, but for a while it was unstuck, but still kind of stuck. They couldn't move it. So what, uh, what they did was they made it, he made this website where if you were on the page for a period of time, or if you closed the browser, it would open up a new tab and redirect that tab to a Rick roll on YouTube to Rick Astley, never going to give you up, which is absolutely hilarious. It sounds like they had a lot of fun with this. Uh, there's tweet after tweet of people saying that they have no idea why Rick Astley started playing on their computer after they closed the browser tab. They must've had so much fun and I'm not sure if there's a lesson to be learned here, I initially was going to comment on how much money they must be making from uh, these Amazon affiliate links. And I was surprised that only a few hundred dollars was made. But when you think about it, that's a few hundred dollars over the space of just a few days for a couple of hours of work. Not bad, right? For a quick project. I bet you that there are other ideas out there that you have in your head right now, probably as you're listening to this. If you're thinking about some crazy website that you want to create just for fun, I challenge you and say, go ahead and do it. I've had several fun websites over the years. Some of them amounted to absolutely nothing. Uh, for a long time, though, I had pretty much free Uber rides wherever I went. Gosh. Remember when we used to go places? <laughs> uh, but I, I had free Uber rides because I spent a weekend making a website to answer people's questions about using Uber in Ottawa. And I included a sign-up link with my Uber affiliate code. And it took about maybe a weekend, maybe a couple of hours each day to set it up. And then for several years, I kept getting notifications that people were using my affiliate code. And once again, I had more money to spend on Uber. So it's fun, you know, to see something that you've created actually take off and potentially make you a little bit of extra cash. It's kind of a cool uh, accomplishment to do stuff like that. You've probably heard the news again that SEMrush went public last week, which again is very darn exciting. 
Jada Parikh tweeted, now SEMrush will have a few more high authority links from financial and news sites. And Joe Youngblood brought this to my attention saying, it's a pretty great link building tactic and probably builds EAT, right? And you know, I think he's right. So there's no tool that you can use to determine whether a site has improved their EAT. Because EAT is not a single score or something that can be easily measured. It really represents many, many different signals that Google could be using. But we know that the A in EAT, authoritativeness, is closely connected to PageRank. This is something that's mentioned in Google's guide on how they fight disinformation. And we also know that Gary Ish said a few years ago that it's largely based on offsite links and mentions. This is EAT. Now, when I first heard this news about SEMrush going public, I thought, well, let's see what kind of new links SEMrush.com got. So here's some irony. I went to SEMrush.com and I typed in SEMrush.com into the search bar, which is something that I actually do on a weekly basis. But this was the first time I actually did it on purpose. This is like, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one who goes to Google Analytics and then types in Google Analytics instead of the site that you're trying to bring up. Uh, I do this with SEMrush all the time. But this time I actually really did want to see data for the website SEMrush.com. And according to SEMrush's data, they actually lost links over the last few weeks instead of gaining more links. But Ahrefs uh, reports that they did see an increase in the number of links that they usually get. Uh, but SEMrush gets a massive number of links on a regular basis. I was going through the most recent links because I wanted to point out, oh, they got a link from maybe the New York Times or uh, you know some major financial publication. But... I spent about 10 minutes or so looking and actually did not find many links like this. They're mentioned in places like Yahoo Finance or also on authoritative SEO websites, but most of these sites have linked to the press release, which is on BusinessWire, as opposed to linking to SEMrush.com. So those links won't directly be helping SEMrush to rank better. I'm sure if I looked harder, I could find that they actually did gain some authoritative links. But what's more important here is that having your brand or your business or even you as an individual mentioned across authoritative websites really is good for your EAT. I personally think that this is all connected to entity information and especially the associations between entities. Remember that the quality raters guidelines teach the raters that it's a sign of high quality if authoritative experts in your field are mentioning you. When you get mentioned on authoritative websites, this speaks to your EAT. So sure enough, both SEMrush's estimate and Ahrefs' estimate of how much traffic SEMrush.com received shows that they actually had a substantial increase in traffic since all of this news came out. But it's not just traffic. It's not that more people were hearing their brand in the news and maybe the publicity got more people to search for their website. You know, people saying, oh yeah, SEMrush, let me go check it out. I mean, that could contribute to more traffic. But instead, a large number of their keyword rankings actually improved over the last uh, week or so as well. In newsletter, I've included some screenshots to show you specific keywords that they saw improvements for. But there's no doubting that all of this publicity spoke to SEMrush's EAT, in my mind. 
You know, we've been talking a lot over the last few months about whether links actually still matter. And just to reiterate my thoughts on that, I think that Google's getting really good at figuring out when links are ones that they should actually count as recommendations. As people saying, wow, this company's doing great things, which is what happened in SEMrush's case, right? I mean, you, you take a company uh, and, and go public with it, that's people saying, wow, we should be talking about this business because they're doing great things. They're, 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 you know, now they're publicly traded. That's fantastic. Um, as opposed to just links that we've just made to try and trick Google into thinking that people are recommending our website. Let's talk about this research I did into these FTC warning letters, the federal trade commission warning letters. Daniel Dessinger on Twitter asked John Mueller this question. Does Google ding websites that receive an FTC warning letter? I'm curious if they make required changes and if the page content mentioned is removed, does that affect EAT or any other ranking factors? I thought that was a great question. We don't know exactly how Google measures trustworthiness, but we know that it's something that they value. Again, EAT, the T is trustworthiness. We can get little tips based on what's in the quality raters guidelines. We really believe that if something's in the quality raters guidelines, it represents what Google wants to be doing with their algorithms. For example, if the quality raters are told that it's a sign of high quality when a website has clear information about their terms and conditions and refund policy, assuming that that's relevant to your website, then we can infer that Google's algorithms are trying to determine this as well. And if that information's lacking, then it could contribute somehow to Google's assessment of trust for your site. So John's response was interesting. He said, quote, I don't think Google would know. This is again in regards to the FTC letters. It might be that there's some coincidental overlap with what our algorithms look out for and what the FTC looks out for, but I'm pretty sure that wouldn't be by design. This is very similar to the discussion that came up a couple of years ago when we were talking about whether a bad BBB, Better Business Bureau rating, could impact Google's assessment of trust for your site. And the conclusion that we had at that time was that it was unlikely that Google factored in the BBB ratings to their algorithms. But if you had a bad BBB rating, all of the things that led up to that bad rating would send out signals that Google would pick up on. So it's not that one leads to the other, it's that they're both picking up the same signals. So it made me think about what kind of signals there could be in these cases where medical websites got letters from the Federal Trade Commission. It turns out that you can actually go to the FTC's website and read these letters, and the letters give very specific examples of which words on which pages are breaking the law in terms of making medical recommendations. I looked at a whole bunch of these letters. I spent way too long getting lost in them. And every one that I saw was a warning for a site that was selling products or linking to products and promising some type of a treatment or cure or some type of medical advice connected to coronavirus. 
But the thing is, it's not just in sites selling products that got these warnings. One of the sites is one called uh, musthavemom.com. It's a mom blog, but they don't actually sell products. Instead, this is very, very common. They use Amazon affiliate links to link to products that they're recommending in their blog posts. So they talked about having immune boosters on hand so that if you feel a virus coming on, you can have some type of natural protection. This is what was called out in this FTC uh, letter. And a lot of these letters were for, as is the same in this case, people recommending vitamin C. When I first saw this, I thought, well, what's the harm? We all know that vitamin C is healthy. And I don't think anybody expects that they're going to actually cure coronavirus with vitamin C. So what's the harm in recommending it as it's just something healthy to do that maybe could help support your immune system? Well, it turns out that it's actually illegal to do that, at least in the U.S. Each of these letters has the following paragraph. I'm going to quote again. It is unlawful under the FTC Act to advertise that a product can prevent, treat, or cure human disease unless you possess confident and reliable scientific evidence including when appropriate, well-controlled clinical studies, substantiating that they do at the time they are made. It goes on to say that there is no study known for COVID-19 for the products that they recommended. Now, I know we have clients that have pages that recommend things like this. And I don't think it's just if you're recommending products for coronavirus that's against the law. What I just read says that you cannot advertise that any product can treat or cure a human disease unless you've got strong evidence to support it. And I say strong evidence because another one of the letters that I read gave a very interesting example of a site that was recommending cinnamon bark, again, as some type of immune stimulant to help protect against coronavirus. What's interesting about this case is that the example that's quoted by the FTC uses a line that references a study that was done that actually suggests that cinnamon bark might have antiviral effects and maybe could prevent infection in humans. So once again, we're at this place where we say, you know what, there's some research that says cinnamon bark could have antiviral properties. So what's wrong with trying to recommend this to people? What harm could come of it? The problem is, though, that there's a big difference between a study that suggests that maybe something might help your body fight viruses and an expert who treats coronavirus and says, I recommend cinnamon bark as a treatment for coronavirus. I made that last bit up. I couldn't find any experts saying that. It's a big stretch, right? While we don't think that there's a line in Google's algorithms that say, ah, if you get an FTC warning letter, then trust must be low. There are several parts of the quality raters guidelines that look at very, very similar things. In one place, the QRG says that high EAT information pages on scientific topics, and I would argue that this is pretty much any page that talks on a medical topic, they should be produced by people or organizations with appropriate scientific expertise 
and represent well-established scientific consensus on issues where such consensus exists. If you're a blogger who writes content that occasionally recommends natural remedies or any kind of treatment, medical treatment at all, then not only do you need to be careful in the eyes of the FTC, but I also believe that this content can act as a mark against your site and affect your ability to rank in Google for other terms as well, not just for those pages that have the medical content on it. In another place of the QRG, it talks about how one criteria of a low quality page is that the website is not an authoritative source for the topic of the page. And the example that they give is of tax information on a cooking website. What we see a lot of is medical information on cooking websites or on home design websites or just general blogging websites. And I think that this is the same thing. And again, we really feel that it's Google's, if Google's algorithms see enough of this, they can just decide that your website really isn't worthy of ranking for any important queries, unless it's really obvious that you are the most relevant answer for the searcher's query. I thought it was really interesting to see that the FTC purposely called out a website that directed people to Amazon. You don't have to be selling products yourself in order to be seen as untrustworthy in this area. So what do you do if what I've just said has struck fear in your heart? If you've got the odd post that recommends, say, essential oils to help improve your sleep, you probably don't need to worry a whole bunch. But if you have a fair number of articles that are touching on health areas, lots of articles about that, even if you feel that you're 100% correct in your assumptions, if you're advising people in a YMYL area, so that's medicine, that's finance, that's anything that's important to people's lives, and you don't have actual expertise in this area, then this is something that's specifically called out as a problem in several areas of Google's documentation, not just the quality raters guidelines, but also my favorite Google blog post for the last few years, Google's blog post on what webmasters need to know about core updates. So my advice to many of you is to actually go back and strip some of this content out of your old blog posts. If you've got a lot of it, sometimes it can help to put it on its own subdirectory or maybe its own subfolder. But what I think is a better solution is to simply not write articles and make recommendations about medical products unless you truly do have medical expertise. And I'm talking about the type of medical expertise that would be recognized as expertise by other respected authorities in your medical community. And I'd also recommend that if you have any semblance of medical advice in your posts, that you do all you can to reference any medical fact that you state. Now, something that we've seen a lot is that people will try really hard to add references that aren't really supporting their facts. If you're backing up your points by linking to other blogs that believe your viewpoint, but those blogs aren't seen as authoritative, then that's not going to be enough. It's not enough to say, yes, there are other people who believe this. I really believe that in Google's algorithms, if there are no experts who believe this, you're going to have a hard time ranking. Um, mostly for YMYL queries, but I think most of what we're trying to rank for is for YMYL queries. And similarly, like I just mentioned, just linking out to any scientific research is not enough. 
We see this a lot where we see people say, look, this product is amazing for treating this condition because we found a study that kind of loosely supports that maybe it could work. And I don't think it would be too hard for Google to recognize that the authoritative entities that they trust don't recommend this treatment, that there's nothing in the knowledge graph that associates, say, the Mayo Clinic with this treatment or whoever else is known as an authority who really should know what they're talking about on this subject. So if nobody of authority is recommending this treatment, why would Google recommend your recommendation to people? Well, I think that's probably a good place to end this episode. We've got more in newsletter, including a tip to get your content in front of journalists to try and get more natural mentions. Uh, we've got some stuff about what to do if you get an onslaught of spammy links. This is a question I get asked very, very often. The vast majority of sites really don't need to disavow, in my opinion, if you see this happen. My team and I are actually working on a very thorough article with our disavow advice for 2021 and beyond. Uh, Andrew, who heads up our link auditing department, and Dylan, who does an incredible job at heading up our manual actions removals, they're both putting together a bunch of data for me to analyze. I really want to dig in and see whether we can say still that sites that we've disavowed for are still seeing improvements that we feel we can tie back to the disavow. It's really challenging these days because Google's had so many little mini updates. Uh, it's hard to say sometimes whether improvements or even declines that we're seeing in a site uh, could be connected to a disavow. Uh, so I'm going to have more uh, information on, uh, on that in the weeks to come. And we're going to have a thorough article on that out soon as well. Um, we've got some other quotes from John Mueller in newsletter as well in regards to medical sites on improving quality, but really most of it comes back to read the quality raters guidelines and read Google's blog post on what website web uh, site owners need to know about core updates. If you haven't read and studied that already, that should be your homework after listening to this podcast episode. I hope everything's going okay in your part of the world. Our COVID-19 numbers are increasing in Ottawa here, and we're seeing more and more variants of concern. And I'm hearing rumors today that we're going to be moved back into strict lockdown again, probably very soon. So it doesn't change too much for me. I've been working in a room above my garage since Christmas now. I was going into the office for a while, and then when Ontario moved into strict lockdown just before Christmas, I thought, ah, I'll give it a go. And other than the occasional internet issue, it's actually been kind of cool working in this place. We've got two new staff members starting at MHC next week, which is super exciting, as these are our first hires that are starting off remotely with us. Our goal is to eventually have people back in an office, but we'll see what happens. If any of you are interested in me talking in podcast about how we're training our new staff, please do let me know. You can tweet at me if that's something that's interesting to you. For months now, I've been putting together a really, really thorough training program. Uh, I've had full-time staff now for almost four years. We've come a really, really long way. When I first hired, the idea was to hire an assistant so maybe I could do more site reviews. I was a freelancer and I was just getting more business than I could handle. And somewhere along the way, a pretty amazing SEO agency grew. I feel extremely blessed to have such an incredible group of people surrounding me. 
There's days where running a business is a little bit challenging, but for the most part, it's a lot of fun. And bit by bit, my team is taking on more and more responsibility. And instead of this being me and a couple of employees, we've really grown into a company that I'm incredibly proud of. So thanks so much for listening to this episode. Uh, As always, if you can leave me a like on whatever platform you're listening to, that really helps. And I wish you the best of luck with your rankings.